Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell from Bigelow, and I want to welcome you to this week's episode of the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. Today, my interviewee is Heidi Feinstein. Heidi is the CEO of the Hearth Food Garden, which is a startup business in formation, which will open its European-style food market on the street level of 60 Penhallow Street in downtown Portsmouth sometime in the late fall. Heidi, whose warmth and charisma will ooze through in this podcast, uh, previously was a super successful restaurateur, being the founder and uh, CEO of Life Alive Cafes, which she called the Life Alive Urban Oasis and Organic Cafes, uh, which she built into a very significant and successful business in the Boston area over about 10 or 12 years. Heidi then moved to the seacoast of New Hampshire and was searching for a way to transform the uh, food scene in New Hampshire, which she's doing with the Hearth Garden. Heidi and I talk about her background, a little bit about some of her hopes and dreams for the Hearth Food Garden, as well as some of the things that she's learned along the way with Life Alive and other places. You'll hear her laugh about some of her learnings. Some of the things that uh, we chatted about were actually unlearnings. And some of her um, plans for uh, how the Hearth Food Garden might be actually a little different than she went through with Life Alive. So Heidi and I spent about an hour together. I actually met her up again last week in the um, the location of the Hearth Food Garden to kind of look at it together and experience uh, what it looks like now, which is uh, in August of 2022, compared to what it will look like at the year end 2022 when it's open. So I hope you'll enjoy this interview with Heidi as much as I did. I was thinking about this question this morning on the beach at sunrise. Mm. My dog Breezy and I were having a walk. And I was thinking, if, if someone was 10 years old or 12 years old and they asked you, what do you do professionally? How would you describe it to a 10 or 12 year old? So a 10 year old asked me what I do. And I guess my first, I feed people. And I create spaces that awaken people's energy and possibility. So that's what I'd say. And when did you discover that you were in love with feeding people and creating the spaces to be able to do that? Late, later, you know. Um, however, I remember after I was an activist, I studied uh, Eastern religion in college and I was fascinated with Eastern philosophy and I did like psychology and I melded that with activism and I thought I was going to be um, an educator and a lobbyist and you know social change was important to me and when I was activating communities I realized how much power food had and that people were successful in creating that spark and energy and cohesion food had to be there and I am no chef and no you know and I always made sure and I, I'm an eater I love to eat but I, I saw the power of food and maybe unconsciously I didn't you know then say oh I want to go into food but I was living in New York and we were losing every election and all the different um I guess, factions of people who needed money 
were fighting and I was like this is not the world I want to be in and I ended up uh, studying naturopathy and felt like I could make more of a difference in our society through working with individuals and groups on their personal change and their personal actualization and um, and while I was doing that I loved it but I also felt like it was too small and so when I started re-looking at my path I started thinking about a cafe like a pl- you know the old salons and like what happened place. yes a gathering space um, something that wasn't directed towards but that space was the tool to get there you know first I was working always directly in the issue I wanted to affect and then all of a sudden it was like no let's create a space where people can feel alive and nourished and creative and that'll be the tool to create the change that I want to create so there's a couple of threads there that I'm so interested in one is you started out wanting to bring about change and doing it uh, my words would be like at a macro level you were trying to bring about change across a large context yeah and then you came to a um, point a conclusion basically that you thought well maybe I'll do this more like with an N of one yeah or with an N of small number of people yeah and were you successful with that or in your own mind were you more successful with that you know it's interesting, and I don't know when you think about. I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur, but when you think about the qualities of an entrepreneur, I was dissatisfied in both arenas. Ah. There was efficacy and, you know, pleasure in both of them, but it still didn't feel right. It, something and and nothing is perfect in life, right? But I I definitely felt like I had to shift in both. From when I was working on policy and working on the macro. And then, you know, I had read this quote, and I have, like in all my businesses, I've given this in my orientation. It's like a man tried to change the world, and he couldn't. So he tried to change his city, and he couldn't. And he tried to change his neighborhood, and he couldn't. And then he tried to change his family, and he couldn't. Then he changed himself, and then his family changed. And that was so powerful, <laughs> you know, and then, yes, and then the world changed. Yes. And, I read that when I was sort of deciding to go back to school for, for um, the more micro, and I was like, yes. But I felt constricted. I felt like, and I was working in the micro, but I also was working within systems. And I feel like our healthcare system is sick, and our political system and policy system is sick, and I, you know, I kept talking to people, and they were like, well, you gotta make change from within. And so I kept at it, and I was like, actually, I need, to rec- I need to create my own. And I think, and so I think I melded both. I created my own world that invited other people in, and it grew. And so this small space of Life Alive in 2004 was like the micro that just rippled. Well, it's such a great um, explanation you just gave. Um, Tell us, how did you get from naturopathy to life alive? (laughs) Yeah. And tell us, uh, uh, and and what were you thinking in those times? I was thinking that the systems I'm working in are sick. Actually, the sick care system. Yeah, the sick sick care system. It's a sick care system. And we we sort of have a sick care system in a political system. I mean, it only responds to crisis, right? Yep, yep. 
and I was like, how how do I not respond to crisis? How do I create a space that that attracts people because it gives them what they need, but then through pleasure, through safety, you know, safety is a funny word now, but through creating an inspiring space that feeds them, how can I activate people to know their power? And food, just based on my history, it was like, yeah. And, I, you know, I've always been so attracted to and wished I lived in the time of salons in Paris mm, and when intellectuals yeah. get together. And, and so I was like, all right, food, salon, space for, you know, exploration and discovery what do I do okay I know how to create steamed vegetables over brown rice with a good sauce and who doesn't like coffee and juice and I it you know I took the things that I wanted in my busy life and I created a space to give people that so really Heidi in a way you were creating for an n of one the n of one was you yeah yeah and so you were building a magnet right you were building something that would attract people who wanted that yeah was it also a magnet you know how like you go on the other side of the magnet and it repels were you also oh yeah conscious that you're willing to put it out there so if people so, didn't want that so you're okay with that people would walk in and walk right back out and how did you feel about that i'd, I'd laugh you're you okay know? with it yeah and then i would see those same people dragged in by somebody else later um you know Life Alive and I have a strong identity, and I'm going to repel people, and I'm going to attract people. That's just the, the nature of it. Yep. Um, but what I love most of all is creating that, not forcing people, but creating that point of entry and that bridge. And sometimes it's somebody who just had the most amazing meal or the ma- most amazing service and was moaning and had, like, had to tell 10 people. And then people, you know, what I created for a person of one. And it was 2004. People didn't understand. I didn't have vegetarian on my menu, but people didn't understand what we were doing. And where was this? Lowell. Yeah. In Lowell. By Lowell of all places. So I I, mean, maybe I thought you were going to might say Cambridge or Waltham or, you know, Brighton. The best thing about it, it's like people think of healthy eating or sustainable eating as this new agey or elitist, um, you know, fringe thing. And I, first of all, I love Lowell. Um, Lowell has a diversity, a history. Um, like, it, it just has a, a I don't know, it, it just feels. Well, I think of it as being um, blue collar. Uh, I mean, mean blue collar roots, down. right? Industrial, it, mean te- Textile mills, yeah. but also entrepreneurship. I mean, those are private textile mills, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. For employers who put people to work. Yeah. And, and immigrants that come and create their own businesses. From the beginning and, of time. Yeah. And yeah. such a vital mix. Yeah. I love a mix of people, and I think we're losing that in our culture now. Um, and Lowell, ha- it, it reminded me of Montreal in that all these different cultures and economic classes were together and didn't lose their identity and yet got a, get along and enjoy each other. Um, and then there's just, it's a beautiful city with all these canals and cobblestone streets and Lowell's government got the block grant from the Clinton administration and there was a, a venture fund. So somebody like me who was a therapist and, and, and uh, a political activist who had no business experience was able to, after 
four tries, uh, convince a group of people that um, they could bet on me. And what was the original bet? That uh, a meat and potatoes town would understand a vegetarian menu. They were like, you're not offering chicken. Like, there's no, like, where is the sub? Where is the, you know? And I was like, listen, I'm not stupid. If nobody's coming in and nobody likes my food, I'll put chicken on the menu, you know? Um, But give me a chance and they did and And so what did that look like in 2004 did you open in 2004 I did and you opened it was was called Life Alive Life Alive and you opened with were you working in that location oh yeah (laughs) I never left I didn't see the sun Um, (laughs) I had no clue what I was getting into Uh, you know my friends used to laugh that I'd answer the phone barely alive you know like (laughs) this is at two in the morning um but it was a 1200 square foot space it was actually a second space i got the loan the developer took so long in creating the space that i lost the space and lost the loan had to reapply for a different space when a cafe went out of business so i jerry-rigged with my friends a space and turned it into I did not know how I was really going to steam and cook the food until the day before I opened um, and it was interesting two other people opened restaurants at the same time and they were on main streets and I'm up a side street up a set of stairs no direct windows mm. um, you know everything you shouldn't tough. do yeah, very <laughs> everything you shouldn't do and it's it started slow and we grew 40% a year People started coming from all over, and it was just simple food, steamed vegetables over a whole grain with an amazing sauce, juices, smoothies, and salads. And But it became a community gathering space. Um, and my staff was different than other staff because of the culture that we created and the passion they felt about what they were doing. It was more than just, we used to have a saying like, who drank the kombucha, you know, and um, this isn't just beets and carrots. This is, we're doing something important. And so my staff just grew and never left and it became sort of like a cult. So were there some points along the first, so this is in 2004 and you exited that business in 2015. 15. Okay. So along the way, um, were there some high points that you think of that really, you know, pe- people think of sometimes the progression of a business like an arc. You and I know it's not an arc. It's actually a jagged set of stairs. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. So were there some places along the way that you can think of that were like, oh, wow, that really propelled us to the next stage? Yeah. Well, we were growing 40% a year, and people were traveling two hours to regularly like, order 10 meals so that they could bring it home. Wow. And I went on my honeymoon, and I read Natural Capitalism, which rocked my world, and Small Giants, because I, I knew there was something more for this, and I really felt like this should be the next McDonald's. This, this is simple food. It's made in two minutes. Yes, we create an environment for people to dine and stay a while, but this is fast food, but slow food, organic food. We could change farming practices. We could affect so many areas that mean so much to me, and I was like, well, what do we need to do? How do we grow with soul? Um, and so I put it 
I came back from my honeymoon, and on our back refrigerator, <laughs> I said, we will change the face of food service in this country. And I felt like just simply the first step was proving we could do higher volume with um, the same amount of soul. So it took me two and a half to three years. I can't remember exactly. So I got married in 2007, and then I moved to Cambridge to seek out a space for Life Live. And I knew I didn't, I didn't spend any money on advertising, but I spent a lot of money on staffing and food costs. My food costs and my labor costs were higher, and I couldn't pay the rents. It was just like ridiculous and they were not it was amazing to me and I'm not I'm not as you see from my background I'm not a money person I couldn't believe that places that I was watching be empty for two years wouldn't lower their rents um, and I couldn't find a space and then I found a space that had two floors and the basement space was less expensive so mm -hmm. it made my numbers work and I was finally able to prove that we could serve over 2,000 people a day with the, with the spirit that I wanted to. Um, and like I said, my biggest passion is creating that point of entry and that bridge. And people come in for a soup or a smoothie, and they have no desire. They wouldn't eat a beet or a quinoa for the life of them. They don't eat. They don't like vegetables. And it's like, hey, try this. Notice how you feel after eating it. And they're eating it and moaning and the next thing you know especially bachelors or you know they're coming twice a day because they like like it that much right and um and so that was a high point and so as you grew uh and i think sometimes of restaurants that i know they think they're in a certain business i think they're almost in a training business right there's so much work to do with the staffs to get it right particularly someone for someone like you who's got uh high aspirations and high expectations. How did you handle that part of the challenge? Well, you know, a little study, but also I'm a therapist. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, people, it was funny, people would leave Life Alive because they went off to college or they got a job in the real world, not the hospitality industry, and they'd come back for part-time jobs. And they were yeah. just like... I've never had an experience where the whole person is recognized and thought of. Um, and it's I, I'm at, in preparing for Hearth, we're building a very robust training program. And it's not just about guest service, five things to do with a guest complaint or something. It's energy management. It's what are my goals in life and how do they match with this collective mission? You know. It's a holistic training program, and it's very intense, and I think it's the foundation of a good service business. And it's funny, you go out to eat, and you get a steak, and you don't think, you think, oh, the cost of the food, the cost of the labor, you don't think. I mean, it takes a real commitment to say, this is number one, you know. And to me, I don't, I don't think this, that, yes, our food was amazing, but I think it was our culture that made us who we were. So, um, as you went on, and how many locations did you ultimately have? Three. Three. And yeah. as you went on with three locations, um, did you look over your shoulder to where you started and said, yeah, actually, this is fulfilling what I had hoped to do when I went from the community activist to the end of one now doing this? Yeah. You were building a place, a yeah. gathering place? Yeah. And so you felt some sense of uh, fulfillment from that? 
Very much so. And when did you know it was time to exit that? And what was, what was your motivation, inspiration? Well, I, we proved that we could handle volume with soul. And yet I knew that I, and I started reading books on scaling. And I knew that that wasn't me. I knew that I wanted to craft the vision and the integrity of the company and, and stay with the soul of the company. But in terms of what it takes with finance, real estate, um, financials, facilities, it was like, you know, I noticed when I opened up my third, had 125 staff people, that I was in meetings all day dealing with subjects that did not excite me. Mm-hmm. And I knew that there were people that could do it much better than me. Um, and uh, the person who ended up buying my company had been wooing me for four years and trying to get me to sell. And I was like, no, no, no. And at the time, I was personally you know, overwhelmed. My mother was, my mother was dying. Um, I had, uh, you know, just a lot was going on in my life. And my third restaurant was the problem child. So it was my first time experiencing um, stuff that I didn't have to deal with in my other two. And I started listening to the man who was wanting to buy my business, who was so capable where I wasn't to bring it to the next level. He, he, uh, he bought Aubon Pan and Panera and grew them into national companies. And so my goal initially, when I really felt into Lowell and what this could be, was could be realized through him. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, let's not be stupid. Let's take life alive where it needs to go. And so there's a lot of people who are listening to this podcast who are business owners. Yeah. And they're thinking intensely about what you're saying because a lot of them have those thoughts too. Yeah. Like uh, if I have a unique ability in a particular domain, do I have to learn these additional domains? And I think your answer was, no, I'm going to choose not to do that. Yeah. Did you consider um, uh, making it up? But could you consider you know, bringing on a COO and scaling the business with you as the owner but not actually being the leader? I did. I went through a six-month search all over the country, ended up spending a lot of money bringing somebody in from the Midwest gave him six months uh, you know he he worked for six months and I was just like no way you know, that was part of the decision of like alright why didn't this work and right got it and so again people listening to this will be not, kind of nodding their heads right here yeah. uh, a lot of them have been through that too if you could be as objective as you could what, what, why would you say it did not work um hmm you know, it's been a while since I uh, did the postmortem on that, yeah. so I have to go back there. Um, you know, I think that our culture was very unique, and he um, he was from large corporate restaurant chains. And perhaps we chose wrong, that he didn't have the experience of that. You know, there's life cycles to a business, and he was in the wrong life cycle. He, for the business. For the business. Yeah. He was used to 25 to 75 to... Locations. You know, yeah. yeah. And we were right... We were a little too young for him. Yeah. Got it. And 
I guess another question I would ask is you talked about your culture and your strategy and the, the, the deliriously happy customers and the cult-like following. Is that a business that can be scaled? That's, you know, I read a lot about that and um, it's, I really felt like it could and yeah. I was excited to do that and I thought that I would stay with the man who bought my business and, um, and be the soul mama is what he called me and it didn't work out and it didn't feel like they were going to go in the direction to keep the soul yeah. in and I think that they're, they're doing it right they've opened multiple more units and it feels great but it doesn't feel like like the old life life got it so that was 2011, you say? 2015, oh, 15. 16. Yeah. yeah. So um, if you reflect on your experience there and then your experience since, would you say that it's more satisfying to lead or more satisfying to be part of a team? Well, I think when you lead, you are part of the team. I... I I think I may be it's servant leadership or leading from behind um, I definitely when we got to three and started hearing from the staff you know when you get behind the counter Heidi people freak out they get a little nervous you know because I I mean I grew that company organically I knew every job there was I was right. a team member sure. as well yeah I get it um, but you know when I started opening Cambridge I was less you know I wasn't a team member anymore and then I love serving people so it would be a gift to me to be able to get behind the line and be with the team and and uh, they they would say how do you freaking people out it's not that you can't do it but they're getting they just get nervous so I don't know the answer to that yeah I like being part of the team but I also like seeing the whole picture visioning where we're going and how we do that with integrity and there's there's you just beautifully described there's a uh, maybe it's an unfortunate um, separation though isn't there that yeah. there's a uh, deep responsibility we feel as leaders that you don't feel as being part of the team. Yeah. I was explaining this to someone recently on a board of directors of a business uh, where they asked me about my thoughts about a topic and I said, you know, to be a member of a board of directors of a team is actually easy. To be chair of the board is really, really hard. Hmm. Because you feel that extra responsibility on your shoulders, right? Oh, yeah. And as much as you want to be, then you're not really part of the same team that no. you were. Yeah. I remember going to a show, a restaurant show. I mean, one of the biggest stresses that I felt was an impetus to sell was we were so busy. Our equipment was failing all the time. I mean, it was just our facilities couldn't keep the demand, keep up with the demand. And... The person who bought my business kept saying, we understand that, and we can access equipment that you don't even know about that's not going to fall apart. Right. And um, and so I'm at a restaurant show. We're trying to find the best things for us. And I was in the airport with four of my people who had grown with me from Lowell to the three units, 
and we're in higher positions. I mean, that's a whole other topic of when people are out of their league. And, and, uh, and we were talking about things, and I was under the impression that we were all holding it together. And they made it very clear to me, no, Heidi, this is your shit. Like, I, we might have been on the ride for 15 years, but you are alone leading this company. And it was just very surprising to me. And I guess I should have known that, but it was really like, yeah, ultimately I am. But Yeah, yeah. and again, I think you just beautifully described a, a feeling, maybe turns into an emotion, that other business owners have, which is, you know, if you are an independent critical thinker in our mass culture today, you can feel very alone. You can feel very isolated, right? You can almost feel lonely, you know, and entrepreneurs do feel that. For 16 years. Yes. And, you know, there were times, you know, I (laughs) definitely thought, oh, wait, I'm not alone, but ultimately, yeah. Fascinating. Very much. And that's why Hearth is going to be different. Okay, I'm going to go there, but before we do, I want to come back to my original question, which is if you're a 10 or 12-year-old, how would you explain what you do professionally? You told me. Um, I guess I want to say, is this what you thought you were going to do when you were a kid? Mm, no. But similar, there was a similar... First of all, I'm so different than I was. Like, I went to college and, like, kapow. I, I grew up um, sheltered not really understanding in a bubble and I went to college in DC yeah and I was like activated so I think my childhood ideas of my future were very very uh very based on all the the small life that I was leading and so at that time and yet it's so similar like I thought I was going to buy an island and create a space where women could come and have their wildest dreams come true. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> I know. And yet I do that. Yeah, you know? You so it's so island. funny, yeah. like, how things come full circle. And, and in that bubble when you're growing up before you went to college, what kind of student were you? You know, school was easy for me. It wasn't that challenging. I, I could, you know, I was a B-plus student um, by just reading what I was supposed to memorize the next day. I was not challenged. I, I did not come from an intellectual family. Mm-hmm. Um, Your parents entrepreneurs? Uh, my father was an entrepreneur. Okay. And my mother was a nurse. But we didn't have, like, the newspaper dialogue. You know, the newspaper didn't come to our house. We didn't talk about current events. Uh, they oh, Really interesting. Yeah. They were they were interested in... in they were social beings, you know, not... So interested in, in family being. and their friends? Yes, family, Close friends, relationships community. in their community? Yeah. 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 So I went to college, and it was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and then I felt like, wow, you didn't even get an education. Like, I, I was pissed. Before college? Yeah. yeah. I was like, God. So... And I, I actually ended up, when I was studying policy and things like that, I got really into public education and uh, just how sick that system is. Yes. Um, yeah. So. So, okay. So let's yeah. fast forward just a teensy bit. And um, you and I got to know each other, I think it might have been, would it be in 2019? No. I think it. 2000, 
20, I don't know. Is it 19 or 20? Yeah, maybe it was 19. It was three 19 years or 20. ago. Tr- we had some chats. Yeah. And um, tell us about what you're working on now. Because <laughs> it's really a different chapter. But but it was it has a lot to build on from the chapter you just told us about, yeah. right? Yeah. I did not think I was going to. I wasn't sure. It wasn't written off. But I'm surprised that I'm going into hospitality again. I felt that my mission in life didn't change, that I wanted to create spaces for awakening and change. But I thought I would do that um, not having to run a big company. And And so what were some other ways that you explored? I thought I was going to go and get my doctorate in um, psychedelic psychotherapy. Yeah. And I also, you know, initially when I first sold, I thought I was going to stay with Life Alive and connect, uh, make sure that we grew with, uh, permaculture is really exciting to me, and I was an armchair, I started becoming an armchair farmer halfway through Life Alive because I understood and I saw food security issues and with peak oil and how difficult it was to to be getting our, our food. And so I became really passionate about, okay, if we're going to grow, we're going to create regional centers where we can be growing the food that we're serving. Um, And so I thought I'd go into that and then meld it with uh, psychedelic psychotherapy. Um, But, you know, we create what we want. And I moved to Portsmouth, flipped out over how amazing this community is and this geography is. And I loved it here so much, but I felt a real longing for the things that we're creating in Hearth right now. I felt like we had only very small spaces where to get a great meal, you had to make a reservation two weeks in advance, which who wants to do? And it was very expensive. And I, I really feel passionately that food, yes, is of high value and very important, but um, it shouldn't only be for the very wealthy. Um, and so I started wanting a larger space where people could access delicious food at any time of day, and it didn't exist here. And then I also loved this feeling of Prescott Park in the summer when all people from all walks of life gathered together um, to celebrate life, and I felt like food does that and where is the you know and I saw this big development happening and I was like I hope that's not a bank could we create a large space for season for our people um, that can get a fine dining meal that can shop that could get a quick bite can we create something like this and I've seen this in you know, in a piazza in Italy. Yes. I've seen this um, somewhat in like a, could we have like a mini Italy? And so I started just fantasizing about that and then connecting it to my other passions with local food and um, and then connecting it with my experience of feeling lonely and saying, okay, I can't do something this big. Let's Let's gather a group of entrepreneurial creative minds that want to build this and are as hungry for this in our community as I am. Yeah, it was such a, um, a lightning bolt. I remember that Mark and I were talking about this um, idea that's, you know, just an infant idea compared to where you've taken this. But the infant idea that we had, I remember sketching it on a wintry February afternoon, Sunday afternoon, 
and thinking to each other, could there be, is Portsmouth ready for? Right. I think that's the way we put <laughs> the question. That's a good question. <laughs> a, a Europe, we called it a European-style food market. Yeah. And what we had in mind was the piazza in Italy that you're talking about. Or, you know, actually there's a fantastic uh, food market in Auckland, New Zealand that I've been to many, many times uh, called La Cigale. It's, a very, it's got a French flavor to it, obviously, inside and outside. And even places in, in um, you know, in whether it's Florence or I was just in Reykjavik or in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Yeah. Uh, and so I think when I mentioned that to you, you said, that's my business plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So could you describe what, what you think your vision is? Well, it's a community gathering space centered around food and, and, and pleasure. <laughs> and what does um, that mean to you? It means... Because so for you, food is not merely fuel. No. But and it is yet, fuel. And yet, it, you know, we need it three times a day or more. I was just, Heidi, I was just last week, forgive me for this quick question, I, I was just with a, a group of people in a business where the people who run the business are all uh, ex like Top Gun style fighter pilots oh. and they're all retired but as you know in their military they retire early so these people are all like 40 or 45 oh. and we were having a tour of their uh, very technology enabled manufacturing plant and one of the guys looked at his watch and said come on let's go we gotta go get some food and I said well it's only 9.30 we don't actually need to get food and he said no we do and they went down and they had this fantastic place where they designed in their business where it was way more than just a cafe I mean they had their own um, a, a woman who works with them made uh, you know uh, bubbly water for them of different flavors and, and she made what I think of as kind bars or whatever but she made her own and the whole thing and, and I realized oh they were really focused on okay it's time to get some energy yeah and it was social too I was just going to say it's not just en- it's the fuel and it was really interesting that they really kind of went click in yeah. their minds and they, they kind of said Okay, come on, it's time to go do that. And yeah. I thought, that's a really good discipline or a habit. Yeah, yeah, especially for a bit. I mean, I, when I was saying, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to do this? What kept coming back to me is the magic that happens when people feel fed. And there's no structured activity. It's just I get to lay back and, do, and, and relax. We need that. We're, this world, I mean, we're, we're busy, we're stressed, we're defended, we're going through our lives on road, and there's no creativity unless we just take a breath and relax. And so for me, food is that tool. And so this space is that space for us to do that, not just in our home. And we've lost that space. You know, the, I, I, I'm so bad with names, but the book, The Third Space, it's... it's it's essential for our civic health, our public health, and um, we're losing it. So it felt like I didn't have a choice and I needed to do this, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity. So you're working on developing uh, between 15 and 20,000 square feet. 15,000, not middle, <laughs> In the middle of, Mar- in, you know, right at Market Square in downtown Portsmouth. Yes. And you're months away. Yep. And, and you're months away from what? From a soft opening. Um, we're we're not even going to have our full equipment because of COVID. It has been 
this has been a wild ride. Supply chain issues. This. Supply chain issues, labor issues. Not only, like, I'm not talking about my lab- labor, but even working with the company that uh, works with all the, the equipment manufacturers, they're understaffed. So in terms of they're evaluating our design, our design and then finalizing the equipment, I mean, everything has been really challenging. Um, but we're going to open and uh, and what will and so what will it look like when people come in at one of the doors? It's going to be an oasis of gorgeousness and sensuality and biophilia. It's um, it's a space that I wanted in this gorgeous building that is very modern that honors our past. I am wanting to create a building that feels like it's always a space that feels like it's always been here and that it's luxurious but comfortable for every walk of life. Um, It's not fancy. It's not hotel or corporate feeling. It feels like you are getting comfort and luxury, but it's not um, bougie or, or exclusive. And it feels like it's been here forever, but just updated because it's been cared for. And and what kind of um, food experiences will I get when I go there? Anything from coming in. I mean, you, I have designed this space so that you could come four or five times a day. You can come in and get a cup of coffee or a tea or a juice or a smoothie and a muffin um, and leave. And then, or be standing at the bar like in an Italian espresso bar, um, or you know, come for ten minutes and leave. Or you could come in and you could get a very fine meal and eat four courses and stay for four hours in one of the lounge areas in a lounge chair or a beautiful velvet-covered couch and. Um, and really stay and play some games or read a book, um, sit by the wood fire, and and make it your public living room. And then you could come and get a pizza, or a grilled cheese, or a crepe. You know, a, but more of a sandwich style crepe, not like a French crepe with a fork and knife, but a street food type crepe. Um, you know, quick in and out or a long luxurious meal. A roasted half chicken with, you know, a, a gourmet meal could be had there as well as a simple dish. So, and you can shop there. So you, tell me about that. Yeah, so you could come in and eat in, or you could go to our prepared foods counter, which has chef created dishes, and you could be like, I want to fill my fridge for the week. There were places that I had like that in New York. I mean, I like to cook, but not every day. Yeah. And I care about what I put in my body, so I want delicious food that is nutritious and fresh. And um, there's nothing like that in Portsmouth, and I really missed it. So you could come and be like, I want a quart of curry cauliflower. I want a quart of Brussels sprouts. I want, a, uh, you know, uh, two pieces of salmon. And then you fill your fridge, or you could be having a party at your house and order all that on the phone and pick it up and, and get all the food and then plate it yourself at your home. I bet everyone listening to this is thinking, when does she open? Yeah. Give me the date. <laughs> we need it. We all want it. Yeah, yeah. So um, 
when do you think is a soft opening? December. And in December, um, how many people will be working with you, do you think? You know, I believe that I have to start 20% fat because 20% won't work. Sure. Um, but I also feel like I have to play with that because when people aren't busy, they make mistakes and they aren't as embedded and learning but sort of the body memory of what they have to do. So I, I, first of all, I do want to say that I'm leaving the staffing and labor to the realm leaders. So we have um, four different realms at Hearth. So it's the provisions realm, which is cheese, charcuterie, chocolates, and crepes. And, it's, and it also has a pantry there where you can pick up you know, kale or squash or avocado, and, and um, there's retail items as well. And then there's the li- libations realm, which is uh, cafe, cocktails, mocktails, um, beer and wine. And then there's the bakery and, and prepared foods section. And so the people who are leading that are developing their teams. And, um, and so I, am, I imagine anywhere between 70 and 100 people. Well, it's a big operation. It's a big operation. Is it stressing time, you out? Yeah, but I, I think I've learned that I can only take things day by day and that worrying does not do any good. <laughs> yeah, we get, we all get that. But <laughs> but how, so um, knowing that about yourself uh, and knowing that, you know, that we have this incredible mind-body connection, right? The best entrepreneurs like you, um, you've been doing this for at least 20 years and you have sustained success we have to take care of our both our minds and our bodies how do you do that nature food pleasure massage breathing and and um mentors people who have been there before reading you know staying curious but you mentioned a number of um, of practices, which it sounds like you have experience with that they get you to a particular place. They're, they're, they're habitual. Yeah. Dancing, walking in nature, two essentials. Do you have any kryptonite? Kryptonite was yeah. the substance which yeah. if you get I it... I know, it, I'm trying I, to think what is my kryptonite. Um... You know, genetically, I'm a warrior, and I think my kryptonite is, um, I actually know, I would say my kryptonite might be perfectionism, and I can get into flow and be in a state and feel like I can't stand up and leave it, you know, so it's either the worry and then the the just needing to dive in and not remembering to step away. Even though I know it, I can, you know, I'll go on my computer. Let's say I'm building a, t- a training program. I'm pre- preparing for my realm leaders. I sit down on the computer. It's nine in the morning, and it's seven at night. And it was, just, and that's not good. Right, right. So um, you must have a practice where you refresh yourself regularly. Yeah. So from. And it's so interesting. Like, I've been working, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Zingerman's, uh, the deli in, in Ann Arbor. 
Oh, I do know that. Yeah, I do know that name. Yeah. Extraordinary enterprise. Yeah. Um, they've created. They publish a lot. Yes. yes. So Ari Weisenswagen, I don't know if I'm destroying his name. I pronounce things incorrectly all the time. But he's uh, a lapsed anarchist who has created a community of businesses built on integrity and how he runs his business is, is really an ideal for me. And so he's somebody who's a mentor for me and I've read all his books. I've taken all his trainings and I was on the phone with him and I was talking about this kryptonite of mine. And I was saying, you know, I've been really good at getting out from, you know, it's like two o'clock in the afternoon from two to four rain or shine I go into the woods that's great and I just have to and I was saying to him how am I going to do that when hearth opens and he's like you set that in stone that's company policy yeah nobody everybody knows and and then you're creating that example that this is what we do and this is how we stay balanced and, and I love it and I was like Oh, I, I have the permission to do that. <laughs> to get rejuvenated. Yeah, yeah. And I can know that, but it's without business hours. It's yeah. like, okay, my daughter goes to sleep and I used to dance and yeah. I'm allowed then. No. No. I mean, look, uh, you know, business hours are a uh, uh, function of corporate America where really we had factories. Yeah. <laughs> and we had to bring people together to work in factories. And they worked six days a week from seven to seven. Now they work five days a week. And then we put offices next to the factories and we have the same hours. Yeah. It's ridiculous, right? Yeah. Entrepreneurs have no hours. Yeah. No, definitely not. Right. And, and so that could be good and bad. Yeah. So, you know, in my own life, I uh, pay no attention to days of the week, really, and hours of the day, not really. I try to be respectful of other people's. But, right. uh you know, I find that when I want to talk to my entrepreneur friends and clients, one of the best times is on a Sunday afternoon. Not Saturday, because we all take Saturdays off, we're exhausted. But Sunday afternoon, people are thinking about the week to come. It's a complicated time of the week. Mm-hmm. You're still off, but you're not really. Yeah. And I'm with you. I mean, you and I have a mutual friend who runs a very large $12 billion business who, um, I don't know if he told you this, but he has a secret, which is... Uh, in his offices, there's a meditation room. Yeah. And every day at 2 o'clock, he goes in the meditation room. And they have, like, a massage chair. Yeah. And the massage chair goes on for 20 minutes. Yeah. And he sits there for 20 minutes. He takes a 20-minute nap. That is so powerful. Isn't it? And so important. And he says, yeah. basically, with this big organization, which spans many time zones, he frequently has to be out at night. Yeah. And so, like, that is able to rejuvenate him. He's like, you, I can do anything, but do not mess with that time from totally. 2 to 3 p.m. Yeah, yeah. It's cool. Yeah, and it's really hard to have the discipline to do that, especially at least in a service business. Right. And a restaurant just never stops. Yeah. You know, I had this fantasy, and I tried with Life Live when we were small to be like, okay, when you come on shift, these are, you know, I'm a yogi. I was like, these are exercises that we do. And then during your 15-minute break, and it's just like we get caught up. Yeah. So it takes a lot of discipline. Well, that's when we get caught up that we need it even more. Right, exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. So um, help me understand a little bit about, as you've been thinking about this new venture, uh, and compared to your venture that you completed at Life Alive, maybe you completed it, we'll see. Um, what are some things that you're determined to do differently? exactly what we're talking about without a doubt when I did the postmortem on Life Alive it was like 
you did not take care of yourself. You, you know, whenever, obviously I could take care of myself when things were easier, but when I needed to take care of myself the most and things were, you know, my mother was sick, I had a two-year-old daughter, this and this, it was like I lost the walks in the woods. I lost the, the meditations even, even a simple, like sure. let's take 10 breaths and check in. I was not doing that. And, and that will never happen again. So have you deliberately surrounded yourself with people who appreciate that about you? Yeah, yeah. And no, and I mean, even my husband, it's like there's a contract. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think people, uh, I really appreciate that. People around me have um, made it clear to me in prior years, I've been really much better about it. But uh, they would say, like, uh, some people measure their calendars, some people allocate their time. I allocate my positive energy. And I know that positive energy, at least for me, is expendable. And it gets repleted. Yeah. It gets, but uh, if I'm out of positive energy, my wife, her quote from her would be, "It's no good for me or anyone around me." Yeah, right. I love that. I think I have. I monitor my positive energy. Yeah, yeah. because it has to do with calendar, yeah. and it has to do with sleep and fatigue for sure. But it has to do with other stuff too, totally. like all joy this re- and pleasure, re- repletion yeah. time, being yeah. in nature. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So that's one of the things you're going to do differently. What else are some things that come to mind that you might? Like if you think about, not I'm not so interested in things you're going to fix, but things that you would flow resources to that are strengths that you would now recognize about yourself. Well, I think I think outside of the box. Yeah, thank God. And <laughs> and I also I believe that optimism and imagination are not flighty. I believe that it takes hard work but you have you know I I think what I'm so I'm not doing this alone this time obviously it's it is on my shoulders and um, but I have these realm leaders who I am considering as entrepreneurs and we are collectively building this Mm -hmm. so I'm sharing that burden in a sense and um, and what I'm noticing is that I can ask questions and hold the the mission and create and harness the creativity and skills of others so that it gets manifested and built beyond even my conception. So that strikes me as um, challenging to do, right? Because if you really do engage these realm leaders as entrepreneurs then like you like me they're a little bit you know off the reservation in some ways right their heart they don't necessarily want a lot of leadership yeah they could be difficult to control yeah but it's a hybrid because they're not they're not you know i'm i'm working on ideas of phantom stock and things like that um and yes i hired for for an entrepreneurial spirit yes um but they they have not been entrepreneurs before. They have itched for it, but haven't made that leap. And this is a platform where I can hold them, you know, and support them through it. 
Um, but also, you know, for example, we went on a tour on Sunday of places that are inspiring to me that I want to... Um, With them? Yes. Yes. And so we went to some of my favorite places, and I said, "This is see this, see how they're doing this, see how they're doing that, see how I received this. This is what we're modeling, and how do we make it ours? And, um, and so we had a very rich day and of discussion and stuff and I noticed that they were like so I was thinking this and they were checking in with me and I was like I'm not giving you an answer you know I want to ask you three more questions and then you come up with it and we'll see and all together we'll decide what makes the most sense and I just think so much magic is going to be created out of that Wow! and I really appreciate that position I'm excited and it's the first time I've been able to do that because it was always here yeah but challenging to do right challenging to pick the right people and to hold them accountable yeah yeah. (laughs) I was visiting a business recently it's unrelated to this business but their motto is never make an entrepreneur into an employee yeah yeah and I'm not making them into an employee right and I'm you know but that I think this is going to be a a really untested it's a new this is a new thing like we're we're both figuring out how they can own it in a sense and yet not fully own it yeah (laughs) so let me ask you, um, let's say economics was not an issue. Um, so if economics was completely not an issue, how would you be spending your time? Probably doing this, but less nervous. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's yeah, funny. I'd love... be doing this because I'm passionate about it. Yeah. But... If economics wasn't an issue, it wouldn't be as it wouldn't feel like there was as much as stake. Yeah. 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 Um, but I think entrepreneurs are nuts. Like, you know, I've I've definitely sat my daughter and husband down and said, you know, I believe in this and this is gonna be amazing, but the numbers are crazy to me now. Like COVID has really changed a lot from labor costs to food costs to the pricing and all of it. And I was like, so, you know, we could be off in Costa Rica broke in in a few years, are you okay, you know? And, (laughs) And they're like, yeah, you know, so I think that stress that I had with Life Live, like it did feel life or death. Yeah. Um, I'm not feeling that now, even though I think this would, I would still be choosing to do this, but having a lot more fun. Yeah, good. So you're, uh, I'm not going to personalize this to your daughter personally, but you have a child that's adolescent and you, she's probably been observing you through this. Yeah. And you're very um, intentional. What have you been hoping that she would learn about your work as she's growing into a teenager? Or about the world of work? That it takes focus, energy, and attention, but balance. You know, she's seeing me give her her hearth full attention, intense attention. Um, And I think she sees it as a creative, exciting thing. But she also sees me put it down 
and give her full attention and us have family time and so that you can create something and give it your all but you can also not give up other things in your life but I, I think she'll get that later on in her life whereas right now it's like yeah you believe in something you want something you take that risk you know I always tell her you can't you I talk to her about the safety take the risk zone. Of, the risk it might be the risk of failure yeah yeah totally but if you dream it, you've got to work hard and risk that failure. And, I mean, we talk about that in small ways, but yes. this is a big one, you know. So um, a lot of people listening to this podcast are already business owners, but some of them are um, nascent entrepreneurs. They want to be entrepreneurs. Do you, as you think about your decades of being an entrepreneur, do you have any advice for a young, smart driven, let's say, college student who wants to be an entrepreneur? Go for it. <laughs> um, trust yourself. Seek help. Um, stay in balance because it is, it never shuts off, right? I mean, like you said, we don't have hours. <laughs> and I think you have to be a, a holistic you're, you're doing the gestalt. It's not like, okay, I'm an expert at this. I, you know, this is my passion. It's, you know, I had to become a numbers person. That's not who I am. I, um, and so it can consume every part of your days. And I think that that was a major lesson for me, especially when you're so passionate and your life and blood, to, you know, your, your, your future depends on it. It's your passion. It can consume. And it did consume me. So I would say watch out. Stay okay, balanced. watch out. Yeah. Stay balanced. It can consume you. Yeah. It's dangerous. It yeah. could, uh, it's risky. Yeah. Um, but you said go for it. Yeah. Because? You're creating your own world. You're cre- it is the most creative, um, expansive experience. I mean, you know, I don't believe there's security in life. Me either. And so we have one life. Create what you want. And the only way you're going to do that is if you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, you didn't use this language in your story, but I would use this language that, you know, you have very intentionally, I think, uh, created, you are creating the change you want to see. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's very sense of freedom, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know if you're ending, but I would say I think a major part of that is when I first got out of college, I was working at a huge social service agency in New York City that had multiple arms and populations that it was working with. And I kept saying, we're begging for money every, you know, we're just constantly at the whim of the government grants and private funders. Why don't we create a business that we're, cre- we're actually having an income that can fuel the nonprofit. Self-sustaining. Yeah, self-sustaining. And it really made an impact on me. I was 22 years old, and yeah. I was just, I didn't understand it. And so for me, like you said, we, I, I do this to create the change I want to see in the world. Yeah, and actually, you know, we have people um, who are our mutual friends and entrepreneurs who are both in the for-profit sector and in the not-for-profit sector. 
I'm always surprised because I've spent a lot of time in both sides. I'm always surprised that people think of them almost as different sectors. Look, in not-for-profits, you don't pay taxes. In for-profits, you pay taxes. Other than that, yeah. you have to be mission-driven. You have to have a surplus. Yeah. In the for-profit world, we call it profit. Yeah. But you have to be self-sustaining, yeah. right? Yeah. Otherwise, it can't be. So right. it's, it's amazing to me that we even think of that yeah. difference. It's, it's counterproductive. So um, let's pretend we go to sleep tonight. And we wake up tomorrow, and magically, it's July 20th, 2024. What are you going to be working on? So I'm not asking you, what does the future look like? I'm yeah. saying, you and I are in the future. Yeah. You come to me and say, Pete, you'll never believe it. You remember that time we did that podcast interview back in 2022? Yeah. Wow, it's amazing. All these things have happened. What's happened? Well, we have a ton of invested guests who are asking for more and we're figuring out what we need to do to make that happen and we've had a wonderful audit and good metrics to see what we can let go of and we are we are we're we're distilling and becoming who we are we're still learning and becoming yeah yeah a year from now how about five years from now uh, you know, <laughs> a Are lot. we still learning and becoming? Oh yeah, always. We could be evolving into something yeah. a little different. Yeah. Um, yes. I. You know, one of the things that I was very mindful of in creating this is I don't necessarily want to scale, what, but I want to say stay adaptable. Um, I felt one of the reasons why I sold is I was losing my creativity. We were locked in. Yeah. And this needs to be malleable. Um, so that will definitely be happening but um, I am hoping that we create a community of businesses that the people that work for Hearth that we have now developed a pipeline um, and a link with educational um, institutions to create almost like an apprenticeship program for people who want to uh, thrive in the hospitality and agricultural and distribution and value added foods um, and that we are working to help seed future entrepreneurs through through Hearth. Yeah, it's brilliant. You know, the, the company I told you about, or I told the story about taking a food break, um, they are in the um, super high-tech aerospace business. And if you look at their website or you do what I did was spend a day with them going through their locations, I swear to you the average age is probably 20. I'm, wow. I'm not sure most of them have graduated from college, but I'm not sure. There was a lot of interns, <laughs> but they're young. But also brilliantly sprinkled in, you'd see this 70-year-old face, huh. and then another one, and then another one. And I said to this fellow, oh, so what's your background? He said, oh, I worked for the Jet Propulsion Lab for 20 years, and I was with Lockheed, and then I was on the original space shuttle program. And I thought, oh, yeah, and what about you? What did you do? Well, I have a Ph.D., from MIT in material science and blah, blah, blah. And I'm talking about the older people. And I realized they had intentionally created almost an apprenticeship model. Yeah. So lost and so needed. Cool uh, youth and enthusiasm, but also sort of moderated by these people who had kind of been there, done that. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. And, And the entire place was so turned on by that. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, who wouldn't want that at 22? Yeah. And who at 77 with all this wisdom? Wouldn't want that. Yeah. Yes. we got to do more of that. Cool. So um, why the name Hearth? The Hearth Food Garden. Um, well, first, my original concept had a big fire that was reheating all the prepared foods, so I thought in the center of the space we would have a hearth. So that was a big thing. But the meaning of hearth is what our mission is, a space where people come together to gather, to rejuvenate and feed themselves so that they can then leave the hearth and uh, activate the world and themselves. Heidi, I want to thank you for doing this with me today. Can we do this again? Yeah. Maybe yeah, maybe we should that. do it in a year <laughs> okay. from now. T- sounds and we'll, good. We'll just test our uh, suppositions. Awesome. All right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Okay. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. We believe that entrepreneur owner managers are the most powerful pro-social, and pro-economic force on the planet. And it's for that reason that we dedicate our firm, Bigelow, to working exclusively with them. At Positive Enterprise Value, we freely share our learning so that you can absorb from the experiences of other private business owners with skin in the game, just like you. Bigelow is widely regarded as the M&A advisor that deals exclusively with high-performing entrepreneur-owner-managers. Our scrappy, independent boutique firm only offers one service, that is to help build and someday capture enterprise value. You can find all of the episodes on this podcast on Bigelow's website, which is bigelowllc.com.